Hey everybody, Evan here. This is our interview with Catherine Arden, author of the Winternight Trilogy, a fantastic series of books that Chad and I read just a little while ago. Catherine was nice enough to come on to our podcast and have a chat with us. We had a really, really great conversation with her, but uh, we did this really early in the morning and Chad and I were up really late recording and I was up even later editing an episode before we did this interview. So it started a little shaky because I was just so, so sleep deprived. I had a question written down and it was a good question. And the question was basically, how did the bear and the nightingale come about? How did that whole process start for that initial book? It's a pretty easy question to ask, but I somehow turned it into a five minute rambling question where I couldn't find the point of what I was talking about. And Catherine was such a good sport about it and answered the question to the best of her ability. But just so you know, the question that Catherine answers is that question in the beginning of this. So just wanted to clear all that up. Next time, Chad and I will probably get some more sleep. Catherine, if you're listening to this, we'd love to have you back on at some point. You wrote a magnificent trilogy of books. Thank you so much for all the work you've done. And of course, Thank you to everybody right now who's listening to this. Really appreciate it. And now, here's our interview with Catherine Arden. One of my things with Early Bear and the Night and Go was like, I had never read a book set in medieval Russia or like medieval Muscovy. I had never um, sort of encountered that environment in fiction. Um, and I felt like most readers would be Anglophone readers and most readers wouldn't have, have encountered it either. And so one thing I felt like needed to happen was like a sort of a setting up of this world in a way that was slower and sort of more gradual just to like bring you in. Cause otherwise you're like, where is this place? Like, where am I? What are the rules? Um, what are the politics? And like the earliest drafts were very much heavier in like description and history and asides and stuff. Um, and Leon took some of that out just to make the book flow better. But um, I don't know, I wanted it to be a, a world where people could like inhabit for, for three whole books. You definitely pulled that off. I uh, loved your little blurb at the end of the book. So it was like, I tried to keep this as historically accurate as possible. Of course, I had to change some things, but that was really cool how you kind of kept it aligned with history as much as you could. I mean, I started with a fairy tale. I, I started with a fairy tale of King Frost, which is one of my favorite, um, favorite Russian fairy tales. And when I, when I when I began, I was like, "Where am I gonna do? What am I gonna do with this?" With my first book, right? I was, I was a little bit at sea, um, and I realized quickly that I wanted to set the story in a version of historical Russia instead of like sort of a, a, a Slavic themed kind of fantasy world. Um, just because I felt like having actual history would ground the fantasy elements a little bit more. And then I wanted to the, the fantastic elements I wanted to base in Slavic mythology and folklore. So I didn't want to make up magics or make up characters whole cloth. I wanted to base them on real fairy tale characters, um, real um, fairy tales <laughs> that already existed um, or, or myths that I'd already heard. Um, and, and I felt like that using like sort of real folklore and um, actual history would, would ground um, the story a little bit more. So that was the hope um, with with it. Was it difficult for you to find that line of like what you wanted to make up and what you wanted to take from like actual folklore or was there like when you were in the process of editing, I, I suppose, were, were there any kind of maybe take this out and come up with something new or 
take what what you came up with out and use something else that's already I mean it was so writing a bear on the nightingale was so messy um again it was, my <laughs> first, it was my first novel I had not written fiction except in a you know in a very very like you know kid in her fan fiction bedroom thing in high school um I never finished a novel um I didn't take creative writing classes in college um and so I was just like in a very kind of experimental like like let's see if this works um and so when I started, I, I just didn't know what I wanted or where I was going. And it, it was a lot of trial and error, like seeing what worked and, and pulling a lot of stuff out. And then when, you know, the book was finished and, and um, we were trying to sell it, uh, one of the conditions of, of um, my contract with, with Random House was that I would take the, the manuscript that I turned in and cut the second half out, like cut out about 80,000 words and then rewrite the rest. It was such a mess. Oh, that must have been brutal. And so the second half was a huge mess, like in the original draft. Like it was, it was, it was so random um, and, and and structurally kind of unsound. It was very ramshackle. Um, my first attempts at writing a novel. And um, I'm I'm fortunate that people stuck with me uh throughout the process, like genuinely. My my editor is an absolute genius. And, and her kind of like what she saw in the project really helped guide me through the last like the last parts of it, especially. And, and part of it was just like, like the creative process is messy. And, mm-hmm. and at least for me, a lot of it's like, especially early on was just like throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing if it stuck. I remember early, early on, for example, I had no idea how to write dialogue. I would, I would get to a dialogue and be like, what would they say? What do humans say? <laughs> I've got to think what they would say. And just, it would really scare me. And then another early draft, I decided that that the the main family, the you know Pyotr Vladimirovich and his children, that they all would have names that start with V. And so I'm writing like like there's a Vladimir and a Vadim and a Vasya and a Vanya, and I'm just like I couldn't keep them straight. And I'm like, wow, I can't keep people straight. And so I I start like being like, nope, new names, um, fewer siblings. Um, and so it was very much a a kind of like hacked out process that I just kind of kept at. How much preparation did you do? Did you like write out the story chapter by chapter? Do you have a book on your or a board on your wall with a bunch of strings tied up and like, or did you just like sit down and go for it? It's really hard to express how ramshackle the first book's process was. <laughs> I was, I had, I got, I had got a degree in, in French and Russian language. Um, and I took a, took, took three months off afterwards. I was planning on going to interpreter school. I wanted to do conference interpretation. That was my kind of career ambition, but I went woofing, went, went working on a farm in Hawaii for three months and I was kind of bored, um, was picking coffee. It's boring. Um, and so I had, I had had a paper notebook and I I pulled it out and I start like scribbling basically. Um, and it just kind of snowballed. I had zero plan, zero storyboard, zero agenda. The reason the, the books became a trilogy is because I realized early on that I had sort of too much story for one novel. I, I figured out that, that you can't fit as much plot into one book as you think you can. So kind of one book became three books and I'm just scribbling away like, like a maniac. And, and three months in, I was like, I, I, I like this. It's fun. I want to finish it. And so I moved to a different island, got a job, um, still in Hawaii and kind of kept at it. Lived in a yurt for a while. That was exciting. Hitchhiked work. Um, it, was, it was very kind of what you do in your early 20s. Very, very, um, yeah. But eventually, eventually I sort of finished the first book or finished my first draft, the first book, the very ramshackle draft with like the second half that was bad. 
and was was lucky enough that that they took a chance on it and um with demands for like really extreme edits and I did the edits and the book turned out but it was very much like almost like a carving process where I just kind of vomited out this like very messy draft and then worked at it and worked at it and worked at it until it like came together that seems like it worked for you I mean how do you write a book like I have friends (laughs) I have friends who write like you know a 200 page outline like every scene is outlined you know every beat is like noted down and then they write the book and what ends up happening is the pre-writing takes a huge chunk of time, but then the writing is very quick because they have everything like just just set. And I have other friends who are just say, screw it, let's go. And they start with with the scene and 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 just lay it out there. And it's it's just like, how does it work? Does it work for you? Cool, do it. Did you know how you wanted everything to wrap up, where you wanted most of the characters to be by the end? Or was that something you kind of gradually figured out as you were writing? I mean, the one thing I knew from the get-go is that I wanted to end at the Battle of Kulikova, um, which is a real battle, a real historical battle. And uh, there was a, a kind of a moment in history that I felt would, would help culminate the, the, the things I wanted to, to, to explore in, in the novel. But the way I got there changed a lot, in part because of that deleted second half of the first draft of Bear and the Nightingale. Because originally I was like, oh, I'll take this old second half. It was, it was a lot of words. And that will be the, the basis, the root of book two. Um, so I tried, you know, I spent several months like trying to kind of edit out this like big chunk of text into the second book. And then, you know, eventually I was like, it's not working. This book's not working. And, and I had to, to just be like, take this piece out and, and, and rethink the whole thing um, and start over. And that's when kind of Girl in the Tower came into being after I kind of let go of the original second half of Bear and wrote Girl in the Tower from scratch. How did that feel from your editor getting the email that said we love it just rewrite the last 80,000 words um I trust my editor and she's, she's absolutely absolutely brilliant and um I I love that she's willing to be like hey this book needs this much work especially you know it's a world where you don't always get that you sometimes you'll get like hey you know just fix these commas and go you know and I I, I love that we can really dig into a project and make it as good as it can be um, and she was right. You know, she, she, the, those 80,000 words didn't make the, 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 the basis of a new book because they weren't very good. Yeah, I've read so many books that you think, man, this book could really have used a more hands-on editor. I mean, sometimes it's like a Stephen King situation, right, where he's so established and so brilliant that he's like, you know what, I'm putting all these words back in. And everyone's like, cool, cool, Stephen, you know, and, you know, you could argue maybe like if they were cut outable at all, then maybe they didn't need to be there. But like, you know, like he can make his decision and no editor is going to step in and say like no to him. So you never know. I heard that when uh, when J.K. Rowling put out uh, the fifth Harry Potter book, the editor kind of like took a, a little bit more of a backseat because it was just so successful. They were just like, all right, I guess just make it as long as you want. Rowling just <laughs> so that's why that fifth book is just like massive. I mean, you could argue that book five is potentially the worst book in the series, like structurally. Speaking of somebody who's read all the Harry Potter books many times and was a huge fan as yeah. a kid, you know, is, is so impressed both the series did for fantasy and for children. Um, nonetheless, I, I, of all the books, like you can see where book five could have used like, hey, just a little haircut in the middle. Were you kind of like disappointed at all when you were told to cut things? Like, did you did you want Bear and the Nightingale to be like 160,000 word, like massive first book? I mean, the thing is, the reason the reason it needed to be cut was it had a huge structural flaw. It had a structural break in the middle, something like the stand, actually, um, <laughs> in, a, in a very smaller and less, you know, 
less historically significant scale. Um, but the, the, the kind of the first half was like a complete plot that ended. And then the characters like moved off into new adventures in the second half. And there wasn't a good way to fix the structural break except to like cut the book in two. Other editors who made offers on the series had wanted me to kind of minimize the first half, the, the part that became the Bear and the Nightingale, and, and build out the second half. So it was really a question of like, which half do you go with? And um, I think the first half was better and, you know, that became the kernel of the, of the novel that, that is now Bear and the Nightingale. Um, but there were other ways to go to go about fixing it. I think it's funny because like books seem so like monolithic, like here's the novel, but but you could have made so many different decisions about how to write a book and like, you know, which way the characters go, which way the plot goes. It's just a series of decisions every day you're writing. Yeah, it's kind of daunting. Like the the sky is li- literally is the limit. Like it's just, yeah. and and every one little change that you make is gonna. It's like a hydra. You know, yeah, right. It's gonna like create a bunch more questions. For sure. Did you base the characters off people you know in real life, or were those um, just characters that you invented that you didn't know? Well, some characters are based on historical characters. They're all the the grand princes of Moscow are real real people. The Metropolitan in the first book was real. Um, a lot of the characters involved in the last battle in the last book were real. Um, so there was a little bit of historical research involved. Um, Vasilisa, the main character, her brother is a historical character, although you don't find that out until the last book at risk of being spoiled for his fate. Other than that, no, I'm not sure. When I was writing the book on this farm, there was a, a family from Ukraine, actually, who was on the farm sort of next to us. And they had a little girl named Vasilisa, who was, who was, was delightful. She was, she was four. Um, she, would, she would yell at me in Russian and chase the chickens. <laughs> and she, she, she was very vibrant. She was a very vibrant child. And um, definitely, like, I had her in my head when I started writing Vasilisa. It felt like a good coincidence because, of course, Vasilisa is like a classic Russian fairy tale name. Were there any uh, inspirations, like authors, books in particular, any way that you wanted it to read based on other things that you had read that you really enjoyed? That's a good question. Um, I was really inspired by Robin McKinley, who was a writer I read a lot of growing up. Um, she wrote fairy, she writes, wrote, it's written a while, um, fairy tale retellings. Um, she did a book called Spendle's End, which was a retelling of um, Sleeping Beauty. She did... Um, book called Beauty, which is a retelling of, sleep, of Beauty and the Beast. She did one, Outlaws of Sherwood, that I was a big fan of. She, I don't know, I was just a huge fan of hers growing up. And I think um, she was an inspiration. The Hero and the Crown, like her Damar books, um, were huge for me. Um, I was a big Naomi Novik fan um, when I was in high school. Definitely, I think, felt inspired by her. Other than that, it was more just like I wanted a fairy tale voice. So it was a bit, a bit third person, a bit abstract. I, with the language, a big thing for me was, was keeping an eye on like the, the the use of like figurative language and the use of like different sort of adjectives and nouns that would be anachronistic. And I think we don't think about this because like, you don't feel a jolt, for example, in this medieval Russian setting because there's no electricity. So the kind of metaphors people would think of, the kind of like nouns, verbs, and adjectives they would lean towards, especially figuratively, are a bit different from ours um, because their context is different. And I think it's important to keep an eye on like that as you're building, building language for a setting. Like a lot of our figurative language comes from like British English, which comes from like sort of a, a kind of British environment, right? So you say taken aback, that's a naval term. A lot of things are naval terms, taken aback and fine feather, like all those things come from boats, right? And again, we're in a landlocked environment, so you've got to be careful. 
like what kind of language you use. Wow, that must have required a lot of research to be like, is that a boat term? <laughs> <laughs> just just read Patrick O'Brien, honestly. <laughs> I have a sailboat, so I really enjoy uh, geeking out to sail stuff. <laughs> yeah, Chad, if you never read Patrick O'Brien, you should definitely like he's like he's like the nautical fiction guy. Yeah. Really? Or is it, okay. I mean it's fiction, but it's based on a lot of it's like a British um a British naval captain and his best friend who's a surgeon in the Napoleonic Wars. Oh, okay. Uh, your books are so unique. Like I've read hundreds of fantasy novels. And when I picked up yours, I was like, okay, what are we getting into? And I always try to compare books. And your books are pretty uncomparable in that they're a fantasy or they're they're fantasy books, but they're also a fairy tale. Was there any book that or series that you pulled inspiration from that was like your main bucket source of inspiration? I mean, I mentioned Robin McKinley. Um, I was I grew up on fairy tale retellings. I had never read a novel length retelling of a Russian fairy tale um, when I wrote those books. Um, and I had never read any kind of Russian inspired fantasy almost at all. I mean, I had read like, I, I had read sort of books in Russian and about Russia when I was always studying and had enjoyed them. But I, you know, it was a different perspective when you're an outsider um, writing about a, a culture you've experienced and studied and lived in, but not grown up in. And I just, I, th I thought it'd be cool. Like I didn't have much deeper thoughts in my head. I thought it'd be cool. I wanted also, I feel, I thought that there, there's so many kind of visual and storytelling cliches about sort of Muscovy. There's like stars and onion domes and samovars and empires. I think we had this whole like collection of, of, of cliches um, to do with Russia and Slavic culture and I felt that setting the novel in time before I Have the Terrible, which is before Tsars, um, before almost any of those cliche things even happened, um, that I would have the freedom to portray a region in a different light, like in, in a light that people hadn't seen. Um, and also when you're that far back in history, especially in a, the history of a place that had a very low literacy rate um, and, and very few written records, um, you have a lot of gaps in the record to play with. Um, like with the final book, and this may be a bit of a spoiler, sorry to your readers, um, but in the final book, The Battle of Kulikova, um, it is known from like the chronicles that like this one prince, Alek, his allegiance was very uncertain. Like first he was like with the Mongols and he was with the Russians and no one's sure if he switched sides or was a traitor or he got bought off, what happened? And I was like, oh, well, cool. I'll make up a reason why Alek would switch sides. And the reason is my main character. It was great. That hammer and anvil ending boom, was so cool. I'm a big fan of like large warfare and you killed that last <laughs> that last war yeah the army of three that was that was a fun chapter right for it sure it was great i noticed that book one starts with a story and book two starts with a story and i felt like book three um Vasi is attempting a story but gets interrupted is that kind of like a almost like a representation for like kind of her choosing her own path that, that was that was the purpose like the first the first novel the fairy tale is like it, it's sort of like echoed and amplified in the novel um the second in the second book the fairy tale is is gender swapped in the novel right because the snow maiden is is the winter king in the second novel um and then the third book Lassia starts a new story but then she 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 interrupts her own story and takes off um so sort of life interrupts her and then she takes charge of her own destiny that was kind of the um that was kind of the hope of stopping that story halfway through um because like i feel like she's off script that was kind of my my hope was like she's off script now she's right. she's she's about to chart her own path 
um, first in the story and then in the book. I, that was one thing I wanted was to have her grow up over the course of the series. In, in a way, like, you know, the series kind of followed me through my early 20s and I felt like I was growing up a little bit with her and that sort of maturity I was gaining helped inform hers um, to a certain extent. I mean, part of it was like trying to inhabit realistically the experience I'd given her. Like, you know, she just wasn't the same person after all the things that happened from book one to book three. Um, and it felt very organic how she kind of grew in my mind and on the page. But yeah, I wanted her to come of age. And I felt like coming of age, I, I feel like often in fantasy, I felt that especially with women, their coming of age stops too soon because they started, you start as a child, you want child things, right? And in the second book, she's like, I want my freedom. I want to be responsible. I want, I want out, out, out. And she's, she's kind of selfish in the second book. Honestly, she makes selfish decisions. Um, she makes makes reckless decisions in, in, in a lot of in, in a lot of books. And I think maybe in, a, in American culture as well, like this kind of like individualism at any cost is sort of presented as like the highest good. Like I choose myself. I get out there. You know, I'm going to do my thing. I, I find my love. You know, that's that's the that's the pinnacle. But I wanted her to move past that and then circle back and take responsibility for her country and for her family as an adult that that to me was like kind of the maturity that I was after was not like you know ending with the romance or ending with the wedding or ending with like her riding off into the sunset but ending with her deciding to take a stand for her country her family um and take responsibility for their fates too I mean, I've definitely got angry emails. Like, why is she so dumb? Why is she so reckless? Like, I don't like her now. And I'm like, and I'm a little bit like, yeah, she, she grew up. She made a bunch of mistakes. I, I, I personally like it when characters make mistakes that they then learn from. We often don't learn from our mistakes. Um, but, you know, that was, that was a preference. And one of her mistakes is just being reckless, which was intentional. And she's definitely reckless. But I think she learns from reckless mistakes. Um, and a big illustration of that is what happens um, with her sister in the second book versus with her brother in the third book. And you can cut spoilers if you want, but in, in the second book, she chooses to save her sister's life under kind of difficult circumstances. And in the third book, chooses to not save her brothers under also difficult circumstances. And I think that to me was like kind of the clearest illustration of how she's matured. Yeah, and she like lets them make their own. Like she makes a decision for her sister that it was not appropriate for her to make. Like her sister had made the opposite decision. And I remember I even called it out in the podcast. I was like, she was presented with that same exact opportunity in the third book. And she had learned enough to be like, no, I'm going to let yeah. him decide his own fate now. Yeah, she, she'd come to understand something that it wasn't about her. Um, which is, I think is like, to me, is like one of the best marks of adulthood is like, it's not all about you, which you do eventually learn. At some point, hopefully, most people. Hopefully, <laughs> that's their, a tough one in their lives. It's something to learn, and and she does, and it's, it's, it's I think it's heartbreaking. Um, but it was an important lesson. I think was one that to me illustrated that she had become an adult, which was something I wanted for her very much. You had very lots of great ideas and cool things in the books. My favorite, and I always. I always say that we're chasing that magical journey juice. You know, that feeling when Chad you first loves read like magical a fantasy. Juice. I just love oh that God. feeling. Great <laughs> okay. Yeah. The magical journey juice. It's what we're all chasing. You know, it's what you felt when you read Harry Potter, yeah. Potter when you were 10, you know. Um, the Path to Midnight. Yeah. That gave me such an awesome feeling of magical journey juice. I just <laughs> love that. Was that 
your own idea or did you pull that from something? Where did that come from? So Lady Midnight is a real character, Polonochnitsa, um, in Russian folklore. There's like a Lady Midnight and a Lady Midday. Um, they have separate powers. Um, Lady Midnight brings nightmares. She lives in swamps. She sometimes steals children, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm like thinking about, I think this was really cool. I was like, oh, what, what cool characters. I want them in my books. Um, but of course you ask yourself, like, what are they like? What do they do? Where do they live? And of course, the literal answer for somebody named Lady Midnight is that she lives in midnight. But what is midnight? And I'm like, oh, what if midnight was literally midnight? Okay, but but what if it was every midnight ever? Just so bam, 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 bam. Sort of. So if a country becomes like a moment, um, which was a little a little heady. Um, <laughs> it's like Blake Crouch level heady. <laughs> <laughs> but but I liked it in part because it it helped me play with time and distance in a way that didn't feel wholly weird for the setting, and which is a concept that I that I really enjoyed. Um, in a very 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 early draft of the last book, um, Vaslisa finds herself in the 20th century. Um, through going through midnight of course I took it out because it was ridiculous but um i definitely oh my had, god i love that i definitely had early <laughs> visions of like the siege of leningrad but i was like no 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 like like get you back to the middle ages it's okay but it did feel a little bit like it worked well with how moroska only lived in winter and existed mm-hmm. in winter and so if that's midnight she just exists in midnight right and so I don't know. It seemed to work, and I thought it was cool. Like there really wasn't a good, good reason. Um, it was not in folklore, the country of midnight, but it also gave me a chance to like figure out how to imprison Moroska in the third book. I mean, I feel like just having some basic like he's stuck here would wouldn't have worked. So kind of thinking about like, oh, where would he want to be? And I was like, oh, he want to be back in this moment when he was was appreciated and he was powerful and he was a god. You know, he he wasn't diminished. So that's kind of gave me the idea for how to do the scenes where the Winter King is imprisoned in the third book. What is the most uh, valuable piece of advice you've either been given or heard about writing? That's a good question. The most, the best advice I ever give is finish what you start. It's easy to start something. You're in, you're excited for an idea. You're full of words. You're ready to go. You start going and you get however many pages in, 10, 20, 30, 50. And then you're just not excited anymore. Like you're bored. It's hard. Um, you're slogging, the ending's far away. Every book has a phase where you're like, just, oh, I'm still working on this book. And the only way out is through. And you learn so much more by finishing things than you do by starting them. Because starting is not that hard. Finishing is very hard. Um, and the only way to improve, in my opinion, as a writer is by taking projects through to completion and editing, editing them. It's like juggling. You know, if you, anybody can throw six oranges into the air, but how many folks can catch all six? well said so you have to finish your projects even if even if you don't think they're good even if you're like oh this ending is whatever you got to finish them it's really important to to do so that's my my best piece of advice and I think one of the biggest things I find in in inspiring writers is is they want it they they, they get going and they want it to be good so bad and they're reading it over and they're fixing they want it to be good and I'm like and I'm like your first draft gonna suck (laughs) <laughs> like no one writes good first drafts, you know, maybe if you're a very experienced author and you're a good outliner and are able to like really, really get it down early, but like you have to be willing to just write a shitty chapter and keep going, you know, yeah. don't read it over. Just, just go. You have to just go and try not to judge yourself in the process. 
you know, if aliens land in your historical romance, like just go with it, you know, just <laughs> sounds kind of cool to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think, I think a great example of like that screw it go attitude is like Outlander by Diana Gabaldon. Like she was, she's talked about her process for the first book and she was like, yeah, I thought Scotland was cool because the kilts and um, <laughs> when I started writing, the main character seemed kind of anachronistic. So I was like, cool, time travel. And she just went for it. And look what happened, you know? So like, I think I think that, that attitude is so important for a creative person. I mean, you learn from your failures. You don't learn from the things you don't write, you know? I feel like it's always a bit sad when someone's like, I have this idea in my head. It's been in my head. I'm just like, just do the idea. It's not, ideas are not jewels, you know? They're their ideas are a dime a dozen just 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 go it's easy to question yourself um everyone's questioned themselves before and like again the only way out is through um i wanted to ask about your um like when you're actually sitting and writing and you're like kind of in the zone you know um, whatever zone that might be uh do you listen to music do you do you have a special spot in your house that you write is there any kind of like method or um kind of routine that you follow um i have an office i'm in it right now I love my office and do a lot of good work here. Um, I have a treadmill desk. It's kind of nerdy, but like, especially for drafting, um, it's so nice being able to walk and I love it a lot. And I think if you're working from home, writing a lot, everyone should get one. I, I mean, it just makes you feel better. Just like your brain works better. Um, I usually put on noise canceling headphones and I'll, I'll often, it depends. Like I listen to soundtracks sometimes. If I'm feeling kind of kind of low or like slow, I'll put on some just like 80s grinds, like like something very bouncy. It depends on my mood, what I what I feel like listening to. Sometimes violin concertos. It's very, it's very variable. Do you find yourself changing songs depending on what scene you are writing? Like if you're writing a war where you're like, okay, let's write some get some really <laughs> good upbeat, like war music. I definitely upbeat. I definitely had the Game of Thrones soundtrack going when I was finishing Winter of the Witch, which is an extremely just like tense soundtrack. I've always thought it'd be interesting to like to like talk about Game of Thrones as like links to historical fantasy, like you know, so clearly inspired by the War of the Roses. Yeah, he like barely changed the names. Oh yeah, York, Yorks and Lancasters became Starks and Lannisters. Like That's so ridiculous. Like like it's but it's cool though too. Yeah. How, it's like how how fantasy can transform history. It's great. Like like Tolkien's like Moria like or no Mordor like that part of Lord of the Rings was taken straight from like his experiences in World War One. You know. Do you have any suggestions uh, or recommendations for either Russian uh, fairy tales, fantasy books, sci-fi books, uh, classics that maybe aren't like the, um, you know, the, the really big ones like Brothers Karamazov and Tolstoy and things like that? Yeah, of course. Well, if you want contemporary, um, well, it's, not, it's not fantasy, but um, Boris Akunin is definitely in translation and he writes, um, he writes sort of Tsarist era murder mysteries. The first one's called The White Queen. And it's definitely in English. Um, and they're they're great. They're so charming. If you want a good translation or a book of Russian fairy tales, um, Alexander Afanasyev is a sort of Russian folklorist. You can definitely find his work in English. Gotta plug my favorite book, which is Master and Margarita um, by Mikhail Bulgakov. Oh my God, it's so, so, oh my God, it's so good. It's, a, it's a Soviet, <laughs> the Soviet era satire. Um, the devil comes to Moscow with an entourage during... Um, during the 1930s during the terror um, and just proceeds to wreak havoc and it's an absolute satire of Stalin's Russia and it's just like you haven't seen like like there's a famous image of like a cat with a revolver I don't think I've ever seen that oh my gosh Master and Margarita it's um oh it's hilarious it's like scathing 
like the 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 concept right is that like in in this sort of almost like fallen world like this sort of horrible like moscow full of like frightened people and lying people and like desperate people like the only one telling the truth is the devil it's absolutely brilliant it's really funny like it's it's laugh out loud funny in a lot of places oh just um, before we get um vida nostra um by marina and sergey diachenko there's a they're a couple um and it's a pretty recent novel vida nostra but it's like a, a fantasy uh school book it's really good would you uh, be interested in taking Vasya to the screen and having a TV show or a movie? And if so, who would you want to play Vasya? I mean, who isn't interested? Um, <laughs> I, think be, I think it'd be really cool. I think, of course, it'd be cool. Like, it's, it's, it'd be a tougher one, I think, in some ways to bring to the screen. But it'd be really cool. Um, as, far as, as far as who would play Vasya, um, I mean, Anya Taylor-Joy is probably a little too old now. But she definitely has the look, for sure. Um, when I was writing, I had sort of a young Charlotte Gainsbourg in my head, who's obviously, you know, was young in the 60s. So we're not not really going to happen now. But that was kind of the vibe I was going for. Anya Taylor-Joy would make sense for sure. Especially like, I mean, again, she's in her mid-20s now, so maybe a little bit on the older side. But, you know, I remember when she was, um, her first movies, like definitely kind of otherworldly vibe. Like her and The Witch might be a good, good example. If you haven't seen that, it's great. I actually got The Witch vibes from... Baron the Nightingale. I do that sometimes when I'm reading. I just kind of, uh, like I'll kind of liken it to something else to kind of like just immerse myself a little bit further. It's not the same time period as The Witch, right? No, The Witch is like early Americas, right? So it would be, I mean, late 17th, early 18th century, whereas like Baron the Nightingale is mid 14th century. The forest setting, yeah. <laughs> forest setting, and also just like the the witch takes folklore in this case, like sort of Puritan folklore about witches, and literalizes it. And Bear the Nightingale takes like Slavic folklore about like household spirits and like forest spirits and literalizes it. Yeah, that movie is ridiculous. Great. It's a pure fever dream. I loved it. I love me a good horror movie. I write, I write horror for children as well. And I'm a huge fan of, um, huge fan of horror. So yeah, I actually, I want to, I want to try out this other series that you've got. It's cool to, uh, to have an R.L. Stein blurb on, on your children's horror. It was super cool. It made me happy. I was a big fan as a child it's fun trying to spook kids someone was like oh kids like you scared it's great what is the difference that you've found between writing more um, I mean, for lack of a better word adult books compared to writing books that are kind of directed towards children I mean, you got to reset your voice a little bit um especially since it's contemporary horror versus like historical fantasy but once you like fall into the voice then it's fine again i definitely occasionally have my editor be like why did you use this word this word is not a kid word <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be like, sorry, take out. Um, but it goes okay. It is nice. It's kind of refreshing, changing modes entirely between adult books and kids' books. Just very different vibes from audiences. For everybody listening, that first book in that series is called Small Spaces. Uh, is the is the Small Spaces Quartet? Is that done? Is that like wrapped up? And the fourth one like... is out in August. The fourth one's oh, out cool. August. Night. Um, there's three out right now, and then the fourth one will be out in very soon. Hey, what good um, timing for this episode. Because... <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And that is, that is the end of the quartet at the end of the series. So that was, that's all done. Cool. As we uh, wrap up here, is there anything that you're working on that's coming out in the next little bit that you're excited about? And you can tell us a little, little smidgy about. Well, there's a four small spaces book. Um, it's called Empty Smiles. It is the end of a quartet and it's out in August, which I am stoked for. And then I have a new standalone for adults that will be out at some point um it's it's getting close to the end and 
you're actually going to laugh is why I was very clear on Tolkien, the first world war. It is set during the first world war. Nice. Um, and it is a historical fantasy. So cool. Whereabouts, uh, is it set? If you can, if you can say, um, it starts, it starts in Halifax, Nova Scotia, um, in the early, early, um, January of 1918. And then the action moves to Flanders and Belgium in the spring of 1918. So it's set first in North America and then in Europe, kind of at this like, climax of the First World War. That sounds really interesting to start it in Nova Scotia like that and then move it over. Yeah, well, it's a, um, there was, it's sort of a lesser known historical event, but in December of 1917, um, there was an explosion in Halifax called the Halifax Explosion. Um, a, a munitions vessel um, caught fire and blew up in the harbor. Um, they had they had packed high explosive under oil barrels, which is sort of an unfortunate decision. Um, but it but it flattened most of the city. Um, it was a huge explosion. It was the largest non nuclear explosion um, in history. Yeah, it flattened most of Halifax. Um, the reason the reason Halifax still sends Boston a Christmas tree every year is because Boston, um, to their credit, like immediately put a bunch of trains and doctors and bandages and money. Um, like out to, to Halifax, like the day of the explosion, like as quickly as possible um, and set up field hospitals and did a lot of good for the city go Boston. After, after this disaster. Um, but the, the book opens in the aftermath of the Halifax explosion. Wow, I'm like looking at pictures of this right now. Cause... Oh, it was a thing for sure. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Apparently um, when they were doing the Manhattan Project a few years later, um, they sent researchers to Halifax to see what the effect of a big explosion would be on civilians. You know, one of those weird like moments where you're like, oh, that happened, but it's not really widely known. Halifax is also cool because a lot of the Titanic um, people who died are buried there. Um, they sent recovery missions out from Halifax after the ship sank to get people's bodies. Um, and they would just pull them out of the ocean and put them in coffins, take them back to Halifax. And so you get a lot of like the Titanic dead are buried in Halifax cemeteries. That kind of reminds me of, uh, did you ever read uh, The Terror by Dan Simmons? Mm-mm. That rings a bell. What's it about? Um, it's about the Franklin Expedition through the Northwest Passage in Canada. Amazing. I feel like I've never heard about it. Dan Simmons is just incredible. He wrote like Hyperion. And, um, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, uh, but that that's kind of like a good example of what you were just talking about, where there's like this nugget of history that has some some pockets, you know, yeah. and it's like he's just kind of filled the pockets. It's such a good activity, like finding a cool historical thing where you're like, what happened there? And you just go for it. Is there uh, any chance that we'll see Vasilisa Petrovna on the uh, pages again? Um, not super high. I, I mean, I, I've definitely thought about what happened to her post Winter of the Witch. But like, I mean, to be honest, like writing that trilogy was was quite an endeavor for me and um, kind of kind of pulling it to a reasonably a reasonably successful conclusion was was challenging. And I, I'm you know proud of how it ended and don't feel a ton of urge to reopen the can of worms um if i were to like revisit that world it'd probably be following like maria her niece instead of her mm-hmm. yeah that'll be kind of but like there's not really plans in the works and you know i need to get a little down the road before i would think about that but yeah so it was more relief than it was like sadness when you finished the last book <laughs> i mean it was a big it was a lot of work um I was I remember I was doing final edits on the book and I was in London at the time and I I shot myself into a basement like Airbnb for like two weeks and just had cupcakes that my editor sent me and like orange juice (laughs) just like banged it out and I um I I didn't 
think of like that final plot twist um, until incredibly late in the game. I think I had two weeks to go and I was like, oh, I figured it out. And my editor was like, can you, can you do it quickly? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay. And I, and I, um, and I, I kind of banged out the last bit really fast. Well, we're really, really happy to have read this, this whole series. It was, um, so it, it was, it was very, you know, we read it right after we had read uh, the Greenbone Saga by Fonda oh, Lee. Nice. And, oh my God, those were, those were really good too. But yeah. it was just, it was a nice kind of like, we went from this kind of more urban setting to this nice, perfect historical setting. And uh, we really appreciate you writing those books, doing such an excellent job. And of course, coming on here and talking to us about it. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you for having me so much. Um, and good luck with your podcast. Hey, appreciate Thank you. It. Where uh, where can so, our okay. listeners find you? Um, you can find me on Instagram at Arden underscore Catherine um, or on Twitter, same handle, Arden underscore Catherine or on my website, CatherineArden.com. Cool. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And uh, Catherine, thank you so much for being here, really. We really do appreciate Seriously. it. We know you're busy. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely look forward to whatever else you've got coming out soon. Pleasure and good luck.